Are you ready to explore how people coordinate to build and empower your community to take action and solve problems to coordinate without any central authority? What? Bring in the OGs of the pre-crypto decentralized coordination space together with the pioneers of the cutting-edge technologies to fuse their ancient knowledge with the latest tools in order to fight coordination failures, slay Moloch and continue the endless search for the holy grails of decentralized coordination. Welcome to the front lines of coordination. Fuck. My brain is already melting. I hope you survive. Welcome, Daniel. How are you doing? Thank you. Um, I'm okay. Haven't been having enough sleep the last couple of nights. Uh, nothing to do with work, more to do with drilling on my street. But other than that, actually quite good. I'm excited to have stayed back home while some of my team is at East Denver. Uh, I've been networking way too much and I kind of needed some time for deep work. So that's been really fantastic this week and, and the last couple of days, especially uh, just getting some, some stuff done and moving forward instead of so much talking. Also, that being said, is is really energizing kind of now at the end of the day to, to be here and, and have a bit of a chat. Cool. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. We have the, we share the same problem. We just talked about of people drilling in the next to our homes, being way woken up at eight a.m. But I'm uh, I'm pretty good. Besides that, it came into my attention when uh, uh, Umberto mentioned that we should invite you to our community call to talk about uh, what was it at the time. I don't remember what is the topic at that time, but he also like suggested that in general we we invite you to talk about uh, governance I, and uh, yeah i think at the, at the time it was i had given a talk as part of a research initiative by the governors on compensation systems and reward systems uh, oh right yeah about this idea of the the minimum viable salary and and i think umberto joined that talk and he really liked the concept and thought it would be something interesting maybe for for meta game to discuss here right yeah and also he also talked about the uh, high uh, the management methods at higher yeah exactly so it's a uh, higher is a really fascinating organization is and it's a web2 organization they work in iot or originally they were just creating fridges and air conditioning units and things like that and they were a pretty old-fashioned company, but with IoT, they were saying, okay, this is a new thing and our whole industry is going to change, but we don't know how. So how can we create a strategy or create a plan if we actually don't know what that future looks like? And they start thinking about it and, and thought, okay, who's really good at inventing the future? And the answer was, on one side, we need loads of entrepreneurs, and on the other side, we need really good research and development to to dig into problems, into new technologies, into new ideas. And and so they end up transforming their organization in these fascinating network of, they call them micro-enterprises. So instead of big business units, they have all of these small units, each with their own P&L, buying and selling services to each other. And then they have a few systems to incubate new ones. And 
is essentially transforming the corporation into a, a network of startups or or small agile businesses. And over the years, I've taken a lot of inspiration from what they they've been doing there. As you know, a, a very interesting example that kind of showcase a little bit what now is happening, or at least in my opinion, what is happening now in Web3 off the shelf, while they had to invest quite a few million developing accounting systems and different technologies to do it. Now that's the the basics of what is being built slowly but surely through different DAO tooling projects. Cool. And that's exactly why I thought you're a perfect fit for the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> do you want to uh, tell us a bit about yourself a bit more uh, before we go deeper on the the governance stuff? Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, I'm an organization design facilitator, or generally an organization nerd, uh, leadership nerd. I've been for the past eight, ten years thinking about this topic. Uh, but before that, I, I started my career as a chef. I work in a few different Michelin star restaurants. I was really interested in creativity and innovation. And at the time, molecular cuisine seemed to be this really exciting space where culture and science and innovation and creativity were all kind of coming together. And actually, what I ended up discovering in the industry was that it was extremely hierarchical not that creative. There was a very few people at the top who had been very creative once, but then they were once successful, they were mostly very stressed out about the next thing they needed to create. And they were nowhere as creative. They were just kind of continuing in the same style. And meanwhile, there was all these young people like myself joining these organizations with a lot of ideas, but no clue how to translate those ideas into practice. And, and also no one to really listen to them or or give us the, the means or the possibilities to, to experiment with that. So I kind of got bored of that, moving to research and development, first within the, the food industry, end up joining um, this organization that had a, a restaurant that had been voted best restaurant in the world. But then off the back of that success, they start doing books and TV shows and then products in supermarkets and then consumer electronics, like you know some sort of kettle with different temperatures for different types of teas or different consumer electronic innovations like that with a very foodie angle. And then even an eyewear company, like essentially anything they could put the face of the chef on, it started to become a, a business line. And there was this small innovation innovation unit that was at the, the origin of that. And that's kind of the, the team I joined. But a lucky break and a bit of a crisis, they ended up firing most of the innovation team about four months after I had joined because they were doing research and development for a competing company without telling anyone. And so I ended up being the only person left in the organization that had any idea about how that department operated. And so we hire a bunch of new people and it kind of became my role to onboard them and, and pass on the, the knowledge of this is how we work here. But because there was no one who could say otherwise, I kind of had the freedom to, to invent it a little bit or tweak a few things I didn't quite like. And that started for me a, a transition that, that then continued for the next decade more towards organization design and innovation. So then I left that. I thought about becoming a, some sort of creativity consultant after having worked in the, in the very high-end food industry and, and having done significant research on creativity, trying to understand where the, the best ideas came from and how to catalyze them, them within an organization. I thought, okay, this is actually really interesting for lots of other people to learn. Let me go and try to sell that. But long story short, uh, I was only 
a chef at the time and people only knew me as a chef, so that didn't work. And thankfully, there was a professor in experimental psychology at, at Oxford who uh, we had collaborated with a little bit and he saved me. So then from, from that, I, I joined his team for a year doing a residency. Then thinking about doing an MBA, I met a professor in the business school who convinced me to to write about my ideas instead of doing the MBA. I kind of got lucky with that, and that, that ended up becoming a Harvard Business Review article, which gave me then a bit of a platform within the university to to start delivering some workshops for executives who were doing different programs there. And then with this professor, we started doing a little bit of consulting, and, and that created eventually for me the platform to start doing organization design, which I did for the next few years, got fascinated about self-management, then this illusion about self-management, seeing that it was really hard to find organizations that had both the funds, like the, the finances to be able to pay for the transformation, the willingness to do it, and also the technological capabilities to, to really implement it. But then going through systems thinking and cybernetics eventually end up stumbling upon the crypto and Web3 and DAOs and, and all of these kind of things around 2017, 2018, and, and became fascinated and continue down that route. It took me a few years to properly join. At first, I was going to join the consensus team at the mesh when they were scaling like crazy, but then it was the crypto winter and everything started to collapse a little bit. So it took me a couple of years, then got involved in a few sustainability-related projects, helping them to, to figure out their organization design, their governance, and then through that, end up then joining Aragon as head of governance, helping them to design and launch their DAO. And now I left that, and the main, the main thing I'm doing right now is called R&DAO, and we are an inter-DAO, so essentially getting multiple DAOs to collaborate and fund together an innovation unit. We do deep research on the challenges of operating as a DAO, uh, so DAO operations, digging deep, getting the insights, and then helping to use those funds to prototype solutions that might not necessarily be addressed otherwise through traditional startup means. And that kind of brings us to today. Cool. That's a, a long and windy journey. Yeah, it was, it was kind of kind of random. For a long time, I was freaking out, thinking, oh, shit, I'm unemployable. And, and more recently, <laughs> more recently, it kind of all came, came together. And now, looking back, it... I can tell this. I can tell this story, and it's hard to make sense. But, but throughout, it was just mostly chaotic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now looking at it, like it looks like there's a thread going through it. Like it's, a, it's it's a natural flow. But yeah, I can imagine that it didn't seem so like uh, it would <laughs> come into order like this. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And well. You know, I, I think it's, it, that's quite often the the way with a lot of these things. Like there is a, a bit of a a Twitter conversation going on at the moment about the difference of theory and very structured thinking, and on the other side, just trying different combinations until you crack it. And and I guess these things are are very much a combination of that. Like trying to keep a few first principle clear about what it was that I actually care about. And that was always something related with systems and helping society and groups of people suck less because I had been so frustrated with the bureaucracy and all the issues I had seen in, in organizations when I was starting my career and, and throughout. And then on the other side, just 
throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks uh, until I, I kind of slowly started to find my way through yeah, a good combination of luck, but also persistence, I guess. Ooh, makes sense. And where do, where do you think you, you learned the most? Hmm. That's an excellent question. So I, I still keep referring back to, well, actually two, two experiences. So one was in this food innovation lab. There was some point where we were wondering, we need to reinvent the main restaurant, like the famous one. And this was a huge challenge. We had very little time. The previous concept had been refined and iterated upon and improved during many, many years, but it was just out of date and we needed to create something new for like the 20th anniversary of the company or something like that. And so we started thinking, okay, what led to the great ideas happening in this space that led it to be so famous? And and we are trying to, to really think through how do we organize ourselves to be really innovative, really creative, uh, and so on. And, and it took us a while, but then eventually there was this insight that came through looking at the history of this organization is that at the beginning it was a pub and there was the, the head chefs that had had this problem that they didn't know how to solve. And so he reached out to a chemist and physicist and they started having a conversation around it. It was something around like if he boiled the green beans too long, they, they go brown. Uh, and so how do I make green beans green? And why do green beans turn brown if you boil them too long? But through this like seemingly unconsequential thing, they started a relationship and they kind of became friends and they started to chat a lot about chemistry and food and so on at the time where that really wasn't a thing. These were like two completely separate bodies of knowledge. And over time, what happened is that the way each of them look at their profession change. So the chef has started to incorporate a lot of ideas around chemistry, around precision, around controlling different temperatures and things like that. And that completely transformed the way he was cooking and completely transformed the restaurant and got it from essentially a pub to almost a two Michelin star restaurant. Then the chemist on his side, he also completely changed his career and, and now end up becoming one of the most renowned food scientists. While the, back in the day, being a food scientist wasn't so much of a thing. It wasn't prestigious or anything. Now it's kind of trendy and cool. But then after this wave, there came another influence that was with a perfumer and the, the chef met this these guy who was a director in a, in a famous perfume company and started to learn smell. And kind of like the same thing happened, where at the beginning it was just curiosity and just hanging out and having a few conversations. And then that slowly evolved. And after a long period of time of this relationship, finally the way each of them were looking at their own work changed. And as a result of that, there was a period of innovation afterwards. And that kind of took the restaurant even further. And then there was a third wave through a psychologist, a perception psychologist that the, the chef had met. And, and so you could very easily create a timeline in between the moment that these people met, then kind of like incubation, cross-pollination period, then finally some concepts, some ideas, some experiments, and at the end, a product like a dish or a new idea that ended up becoming super impactful, that created loads of press, that drew loads of attention, that many people went like, wow, this is really new, this is amazing, and, and really had an impact and created a lot of value. And the interesting thing was seeing that we talk a lot about cross-pollination and, and the value of that, but the insight was realizing that for it to go really deep, for it to be really impactful, that it took significant amount of time, that you actually needed multiple months or even years of like these people having a relationship and working together before the, the really disruptive, like the industry 
changing sort of idea came about. And this organization had just been very, very good at doing that over and over until they end up with that position of becoming, uh, at some point, voted the best restaurant in the world for being the most innovative and so on. And so after that, I, I tried to apply this idea to a community I was building after I had left these, this restaurant and I was doing the residence in the experimental psychology side. And I was trying to create a community with artists and scientists. And I was very interested in, in experience design and in general in perception, in how we perceive reality and, and how we can combine these different things to create better experiences. And so we're trying to create this community and get people from all of these dif- different disciplines to come together. And we created a, these series of events and, and ways to catalyze those relationships and to, to really get people talking about the ideas and to learn about each other's, not only kind of like what they like or so on or what they're doing, but really learn about how they think and why they think that particular way and what sort of ideas really shape their thinking and so on. And we started to have a few really cool concepts come out of that. One of them was the sort of immersive VR experience with, well, obviously the VR component, but also heat and fans and so on that was transporting you to to the Amazon forest and ended up getting sponsored by the Ford Foundation and Greenpeace to fight some the construction of some dam and save some indigenous tribe in the Amazon. And, and like that, there were a few ideas that kind of started to be to be incubated. But the, the other huge learning was seeing this community was that there was no real financial revenue model to make it sustainable. And eventually it just became so much work that the community itself imploded. And even though it had scaled quite a bit because there was something really cool there. So that ended up later on creating this obsession about how do we make these innovation communities sustainable and it's a huge, huge challenge uh, and something that I guess for the next sort of six, seven years, I've still been trying to trying to crack. And at least the awareness of the problem is what's led now to this idea of, of Arandao. And thankfully, through the web-free mechanism design and, and different governance models, now we're trying to do a, a combination where we can have some aspect of open source research but also offering different partners early access to the insights and the ability to prioritize research problems and also prioritize the sort of solutions that are built then for which problems. And and then hopefully through that, I mean, this is just the next iteration, I guess, of that experiment that in one version or another been doing for the best part of a decade. But at least hopefully with these new mechanisms, we can create a more sustainable and collaborative way to do this sort of deep innovation that has happened to some degree in crypto, but really now to take it to the next step and help bring DAOs mainstream, where we're seeing is we really need a lot of perspectives because governance, community architecture, these whole new organizations that we're trying to create, this better way of organizing is is very, very complex. It really requires a lot of different perspectives. So it's important to be able to have the container that can hold that and, and where people can really learn deeply about each other, really work together, really collaborate, really develop those better solutions as opposed to, say, what the startup could do without necessarily having the funds for this deep thinking. They're just going to be forced, especially with VC funding, to kind of like quickly prototype and put a product out there and maybe it gets adopted. But the externalities, essentially the unintended consequences it might have, might not be ideal. And that's unlikely to lead us to the ideal of DAOs. It leads more to a bastardization of DAOs and more to corporations on chain and repeating history. So uh, I guess 
all of this obsession is is now coming to to crystallize these new experiments, these new initiatives to to try to take a stab and and keep Web three real. <laughs> well said. Super relatable. <laughs> we have the same problem right now. Like we started metagames, like wanted to have build this uh, common space where people can well. Uh, starting from the idea of uh, creating this whole uh, like melting pot of culture, so I wanted to create metagame as this intersection of uh, technology, philosophy, and art. Mm. But then, being, being narrowing the focus and getting more practical into like, okay, the problem we are solving right now is onboarding people to the DAO space. But there's uh, definitely like this tension between like uh, communities and uh, investability, I guess. Because uh, the like investors always want, as you said, the focus on like that one core product, like scaling it, getting it uh, adopted, and like making it profitable. While the community, like if you make a diverse community, the community will always uh, tend to want experiment more, like build uh, like many different things, uh, explore many different directions, and yeah, like trying to find this point of alignment where we can be a community that experiments a lot and that's super diverse but also that's sustainable like we have to we like have something that's a focus that uh, makes a profit so that the uh, yeah the community is sustainable mm. yeah like i follow a little bit meta game from from a distance from some time it's been always one of those somewhat weird and really wonderful communities that seem really vibrant where there is a lot of activity and a lot of interesting ideas. I collaborated with a few developers who were part-time in Metagame during my time at Aragon, and they, they always had a lot of insight to bring and, and, and a lot of really interesting ideas that could be developed. I guess maybe one, one idea that, that I could offer, something that I had found through my early career in restaurants uh, really interesting, was the idea of discipline is that people tend to think that creativity and discipline are somewhat opposite sides of the scale. And, and what I found with the really successful, innovative restaurants was that they were both very disciplined in how they executed in a traditional way, you know, like processes, systems, control, but also very disciplined in how they, they innovated, very, very precise in how they approached creativity. So it wasn't the same type of processes, like the processes were very different. Like if you think of the way you make a decision in a meeting with an, some analysis and so on versus how do you brainstorm or generate new ideas? They are like completely different processes, but you can become quite obsessive at how do, how do we do these really well and not just letting it happen haphazard or Let's show up to a meeting and hope that something is going to happen. But we actually put thinking into how should this process look like. And of course, you also need the unconstrained spaces where people can just hang out and relax and unwind. But bringing a little bit of these sort of discipline, structure thinking to creative challenges was really, really fascinating to, to see. Like you don't want to stifle it so people feel that they are just monkeys in a machine going like, you know, cogs in the cogs in the machine going through the steps, but when done properly, it does give you the sort of good practices that mean that when there is a good idea that happens, it doesn't get lost, it's not forgotten, but actually you have good databases where you accumulate these things, where people build on top of each other rather than uh, it just kind of dissipating, uh, which is otherwise what I see quite often is you have a great conversation, it's really exciting, but then 
nothing comes out of it because there hasn't been any thinking into, okay, yeah, we're going to have these creative sessions. And then on the other side, what are we going to do with that output? And if that's kind of not thought and not planned, then it dissipates quite a bit. But that, you know, bringing it back, that doesn't really solve the, the sustainability challenge. It's more a, a curious note on, on how different organizations can tackle the idea of being both innovative, but also performing. Right. Yeah, well said. I think a lot of it comes down to like the lack of training or knowledge and like executing things like between uh, communities and startups. Well, startups, they're like, geared to do these specific things, so they will like move towards that thing. But in a community, you mostly just have a lot of uh, enthusiastic people that might not necessarily have a clear idea nor like uh, expertise on how to get somewhere. And especially we're trying to make it like uh, decentralized so that it's not you're not employee of this person that can tell you, okay, do this, but you really need to have some kind of a social protocol. Okay, we discussed this, then okay, we must conclude the session by having actionable next steps simple things like that like having a, okay just take a few notes after the the call ends and things like that yeah exactly and, and and you know i think it's very normal like we have had as a as a society a good two three decades you know if not way longer like since the late 1800s we've been refining this corporate model these like a streamlined machine like model that is really geared towards producing at scale. And, and maybe in the last 20, 30 years, we've been refining the startup model of let's find a very narrow problem. Let's just be really focused on that. Let's quickly prototype something. Let's test it with users and let's scale it up. And, and that's led to the great organizations that we have right now, the, you know, the gigantic technology companies, but they have also become monsters. And, and we're trying now trying to to go to the next phase. And I think a lot of people, like, they, they, they kind of throw in throw the towel too quickly with DAOs. It's like, oh, actually, we need to centralize. Oh, actually, we need to put traditional hierarchy. Oh, actually, we need to do things more, more startup way. And it's like, well, look, it's true that it's challenging, but we don't know yet how this works. Like, how many podcasts are there or books, articles, consulting companies, uh, you know, all incubators, all kind of resources about how to run a startup in the Web2 way. And how and, and let's compare that to the amount of insights and information available and, and, and also how diffused that is across people to this new Web3 way that we're prototyping. And the difference is huge. Like, we're, we're only starting to invent it. Like, DAOs are being invented and and if we stop trying to invent them, they're never going to happen. And then we're just going to continue repeating history. We're going to continue repeating the, you know, creating the next Facebook or the next Google. And it's not going to be better. It's not going to be better for society. It's not going to be better for the people involved and so on. And hopefully, if we do continue, or those communities that do continue and continue exploring these, like it, it, it's hard to say who's going to crack it. But as we become better and better and these, it is a more powerful model because we're in an era of knowledge work and we're in an era where people can vote with their feet. They can move around easily, if not physically, at least from one digital organization to another. And the previous model is not really good at that. So that's why everyone is migrating. And well, you know, among other things, why so many people are migrating to Web3 and the organizations that really bet on that ideal and that dare to be the pioneers and learn and then compound on those learnings and keep on learning and improving 
are the ones who are going to lead the charge. But meanwhile, it's very easy to, to kind of take a, an easier approach and be, okay, let someone else lead, and I'm just going to see what they do and later on follow, which, which also works, but, but you're not going to be the leader. Like the great organizations of the previous tech revolution, like Facebook, Google, and so on, they were not waiting on the sidelines for someone else to figure it out. They invented a lot of the playbook that exists right now. And that's why they were the first and, and became the biggest and attracted the most talent and so on. Right. Yeah, well said. Yeah, there's this uh, knee-jerk reaction of uh, progressive decentralization. So like, okay, we're going to start as a traditional startup, but then we're going to just tokenize and uh, sell to the community, which uh, it might uh, end up being really similar to yeah, the, just the traditional way of doing, is doing things, except instead of doing the IPO or like raising a second round from investors, you try to sell to the public earlier. Yeah. And then is the community like, are you referring to the community as your customers or are they like actual community or are they token holders? So like what even is the definition of the community? Because the word is kind of getting uh, <laughs> misused a lot, at least uh, it feels like it. But yeah, I think people also don't, uh, I guess, research enough or like, there are a lot of uh, people who have been doing uh, DAO-like stuff before DAOs existed. And I met people in the DAO space who like didn't even know that uh, decentralized organizations existed before DAOs. And it, like, it has nothing to do with the blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's the thing. Is like, that's why we keep reinventing the wheel and keep duplicating work. Because with that Web2 model, the VC venture sort of way, the incentive is not really to think. It's just throw something out there. And then because you can exit so quickly, and actually, if you look at VC funding, the, the way those models work is that VCs really get rewarded when, when a company they have invested in goes to the next funding round. Uh, and that makes it look like actually their portfolio is growing and so and is doing really well. And so they can use that to raise more funds and then create a second fund and invest in more, more startups. And they, there is a lot of startups that could generate a 1.5x return or 2x or maybe 3x return, but they don't care about those. They actually even want them to go broke. Like I was speaking with a friend who was saying that in a company he used to, he had started, the VC was actually going, oh guys, you should just go broke. Like don't, don't try to do a mezzanine round or don't, don't try to cut costs, just go broke. And the reason they were doing that is because it was better for the VC for tax reasons. Uh, so there is kind of like all these, you know, messed up incentives. And and then because they really, really do well by the rounds becoming bigger and bigger, the time between rounds has become shorter and shorter. So before you used to take like almost a year or something like that. Now, sometimes you're raising a new round in six months and, and even shorter. And in, and in crypto, in Web3, it's even crazier because you can get that liquidity so fast. So, so, so that's why you have all of these shit v VCs that are really just pump and dump machines that have a lot of PR, but they invest in a project, really quickly pull out the token. Who cares whether that token has any utility or something like that? They just pump it. They, they make their money. They offload it to the community, but then someone else is, is left holding that bag. And of course, the, the token goes down. And, and what happens, and I, I was part before... Like at the beginning of my journey in Web3, I was part of a lot of investment groups. And the dynamic that you see is when people win, 
they talk about it. They celebrate it and everyone's like, oh, amazing. Yeah, let me go in too and so on. But when people lose, they stay quiet. So you don't actually hear about these things in the groups, even though they're happening all the time. Like, right, because no, there is not that much value being created. There's more value being exchanged from around speculation. So, so we're creating these very pervasive, very poor incentive, these very counterproductive systems sometimes where, yes, the liquidity can have benefits, the exit community can have huge benefits, but only if it's done right, only if that community can actually add value as well to the project by contributing. If they're just like passive, if they're not really a community, they're just people who got at, uh, an airdrop or just speculators, naturally, they're not going to add value to the project. And then people complain that there is takeovers and and all kind of issues with governance and low participation and so on. But we're starting from a very bad place with many of these projects is that, well, of course, there are issues, but that is coming from the fundamental way the community has been set up as well. And the fundamental VC model that a lot of these early investors that put tremendous amount of funds hoping to make a, a quick buck uh, and not necessarily contribute to the project, not necessarily engage for the medium to long term, only only in the short term. Right. Yeah, find, finding we have like... <laughs> when a project like uh, they have a I don't know a 50 plus million market cap and they're like uh, yeah here's our community and it's a telegram chat with uh, 5,000 people that are all like asking oh when is the announcement when is when is uh, I don't know when will the number go up and like no that's that's not a community those are bag holders like those are but yeah the whole dynamic is broken completely and and it's because we're kind of like in this new model and we don't yet have ways to analyze that so people use we focus on the on the metrics like the metrics always end up leading because people think they are objectives and objective and so they feel reassuring and people love metrics and the problem is the metrics we can actually have in this space is how many funds are there? How much is being traded? Like that's relatively easy because the, da- the data is in the blockchain and so you can just aggregate it. And so everyone is obsessed about like which is the protocol that has more total value locked. Like if that was actually a valuable metric to know the health or the potential offset of that project. That is probably a, p- a very poor indicator because uh, as quickly as the, the funds have come in, they can also go out just when the mood changes. Right, when the incentive, when the incentive drops. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, completely. And that's the very difference of when you create real community, uh, which I know you guys have been doing to some degree, and, and you feel it. And, and when then, when there is a bad time, when the market dries up, when things are tough, the project survives because people stick to it. They believe in the project for real, not just for number go up and then sell. Right. And they're an actual community. Like They like hang out with each other. They're just going to keep on coming to Discord regardless of what happens with the token. Exactly. And and, and of, of course, right, like it's, everything is a bit relative, like it's not absolute, but but yeah, that's the behavior that happens. And there has been also good research in, again, in, in Web2 organizations, a lot of it during the pandemic about what makes organizations resilient. And what people were finding is that not necessarily the huge teams, the huge communities, but more like medium, smaller sized teams that have a really good sense of belonging, that have relatively progressive management systems. And those are the ones who are really good at adapting and changing and surviving in an adverse environment. 
but all of those learnings and all of those practices is what's being ignored in favor of just a, an easy startup playbook in that build adventure. And if the venture crashes, it doesn't matter. You just go and build the next one. And and look, there there is some wisdom, but I really think we can take those learnings, combine them with the other things and do better. But for that, it kind of requires that we take a little bit of time at the beginning so we can go faster later and for and go for longer. The middle path. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of cliche, but there is a phrase of alone I go fast and, and together we go far. So, but I, I think that that's the only way to do it, both at the level of the community, but also across projects, like doing this stuff, doing this thinking, like bringing all of these different influences, developing the different tools and systems that are needed. is too big a task for a single project. If you're trying to innovate on product and innovate on organization at the same time, is going to be tricky. So that's why we're really betting on on these inter-DAO initiative where we get multiple DAOs pulling together to split the costs, but multiply the benefits of doing this thinking about how should we operate? How can we do that better uh, without defaulting to all patterns, but really what would benefit the most given web-free fundamentals? What would allow us to, to really leverage that potential to the maximum we can? We can? And also for the benefit of all the stakeholders, which is the idealistic but also extremely necessary goal that we have here. I was thinking about whether to continue on this path, but I also wanted to ask you about the, the metrics. I've been told that we should adopt some kind of an OKR-based system, and I've been reading a book about OKRs, and then I talked to you and you were like, no, that shit is outdated, don't do OKRs. <laughs> And I want to <laughs> talk about that as well. It, it, yeah, it, it's been one of my my biggest rants because people are so passionate about OKRs. But now there is different contrarian voices that are saying, for example, that, that Google succeeded despite OKRs. Not thanks to OKRs, but despite OKRs, Google ex- still succeeded. And really, they, like the OKRs, they are a methodology from the 1970s. Like in Intel in the 1970s, they were already implemented. So, so it's really old-fashioned stuff. And we were doing recently, uh, well, not that recently anymore, but uh, a, a couple of years ago, uh, I was involved in this project that we did to rethink OKRs and really ask from, from first principles, what's valuable there, what's not valuable, and how should they be designed? And... What we ended up with is, was was kind of like the, the following the following key points. One is you want this sort of fractal structure. So you can have like one objective for the big thing for like the organization wide, and then you have different objectives or or things that you want to focus on for smaller teams and so on. And and you need some level of alignment between those teams. Like that's necessary. Now the what you don't want is that the OKRs become fully cascading. So they are set up at the top, and then each each other team ends up setting their objective just to fulfill that and so on. Because you first end up with a really slow process that takes a lot of time of planning time and also constrains everyone to, to that objective that has been designed at the top. So that, works, that process works really well if you are a very hierarchical, old-fashioned organization operating in a relatively predictable world. But if you're in a market that is evolving like crazy, where there is a lot of uncertainty and you're trying to be decentralized and innovative, that's not the best approach. 
because you're not going to enable enough ideas to come up and to run experiments and a little bit of divergence. So what we are coming to is that ideally you want as much small semi-autonomous teams that are going to learn really quickly how to create value as a network rather than as a pyramid with cascading objectives. And so you're pushing decision-making power as much as possible to the front lines, really to those teams. And the teams can buy and sell services to one another. Like you can have a strategic planning team and other teams are buying strategic planning services out of that team. Or you can have an HR team and a marketing team and an infrastructure team and whatever team really that buy and sell services to one another. But because you enable them a little bit more autonomy, they can adapt quicker. Now, when it really when it comes to the metrics, and probably you still want to have some sort of indicators, what is important for me is to separate the thing in, in three parts. On one side, you have the objective, then you have the indicator, and then you have the target. Usually, OKRs, they, they have an objective, which is qualitative, and then the target. So I want... 50,000 followers, I want uh, $10,000 of revenue per day or whatever it is. But what is often lost there is that one, what really matters is the qualitative objective. Especially if you have cascading things, people obsess over the number as opposed to the qualitative side. And so every objective below ends up just trying to optimize the number rather than to optimize the objective. And the issue with the number is that numbers are simplistic. They cannot account for all the complexity of reality. And so when you do this at scale, and especially cascading teams, you end up losing a lot of nuances and you can end up quite often with counterproductive incentives. Like I was part of an organization where there was this guy, uh, one time I was recruiting someone and this was a few years ago, and they were telling me how they work in a shop and they they would get their bonus if the, the shop sold more than X amount. And they were a little bit below that. So what this guy does is he goes, takes his credit card, buys a lot of inventory from the shop. He's an employee. He's the manager. Then gets his bonus. And then the week after, he returns the inventory. And because he was a credit card, he didn't pay anything, right? So, so you end up with that sort of behaviors where people are trying to optimize a number that are really messed up and completely lose sight of what the real objective is. So, so coming back to like really highlighting the objective, then you can have one or multiple indicators. It, it, it's not that important. Like there, there needs to be a lot of thinking put on what's a good indicator, but there is no need for there to be a single indicator. Because otherwise you run in some situations or in many situations, you run the risk of compressing too much, like trying to simplify too much, right? Like trying to take all of this diversity, all of these different possibilities and compressing it out all to a single number and you lose nuance. And then people forget all the reflection, forget all the nuances, forget all the things that went into it, and they just want to optimize the number at any way. And then you get essentially Facebook is less optimized attention. And then you end up creating this addictive product with all the mental health consequences and all the scandals that have actually cost them a lot. And that's kind of what happens, right? So if you can try to be, okay, we have this objective. Let's focus on that. We can have a few indicators. And then the other bit that is really important to separate is the target. So let's say you want to improve one of the indicators. I don't know how many followers you have on Twitter. You have 10,000 followers. You want to get 12,000 followers. So that's a 1.2x improvement. 
So if you want to do that, like the, the important thing is like understanding what does the target do for us? So if you want to get 1.2x, the strategy you need is probably a conservative strategy. Is you can do more or less the same thing you've been doing and you just try to do it a little bit better. So it just grows a bit. But if you want to go from 10,000 to 30,000 or 100,000, you probably need a completely different strategy. But if you want to use a completely different strategy, I mean, we're talking by definition, if you want a 5x, a 10x in an indicator, like if the target is that ambitious, you're talking about a moonshot. And moonshots are likely to fail by definition. They are more ambitious. They can give you better results, but they can also fail catastrophically. So you kind of need to accept that. And when people define these targets, that that's often not part of the, the conversation and not part of the discussion. And, and instead of that, you get the targets tied to bonuses. So people are always tied in this political process. Uh, like tying targets to bonuses is really a complete disaster. Because then people are not trying to find what's the best indicator and what's the best target according to the strategy that makes sense to us, but they're trying to find a target that is most likely to give them a bonus. Like strategy is already difficult. You don't want to make it even more difficult by making it a political process. And so that's why, why I kind of have all of these issues with OKRs, even though defining objectives, defining indicators, and defining targets can still be really useful to align a team towards what you're trying to do. But the logic around it needs to be very, very different to what is usually preaching in OKRs. Or, you know, at least this is the what I've been testing and, and preaching for, for some time now. Right. Yeah, that's the part that scares me the most. Like uh, This book also writes a bunch about that, how it's uh, absolutely necessary to decouple the key results uh, from from the salary. And in case of metagame, just not sure how it would work since people get paid by the things that they do. And so like if they do something good or better, they're necessarily going to get paid more. So it's always based on performance. But in case of OKRs, then... You, you can use... I mean, it, it, it's, a complex, it's a complex thing and it needs to be looked at uh, a little bit with the specific situation, but a few different things that you can do is first, don't pay people by the target because you don't want them, let's, let's say if they discover a target is not achievable, then they're either going to get completely demotivated or they are going to do something stupid to try to reach that target. Or if they reach the target and doing better work above the target doesn't give them anything, then, well, they're going to stop working because why put more effort if you already got as maximum reward you could, right? Like, of course, there, there can be some uh, intrinsic motivation, but, but especially when you're tying compensation to targets, you tend to kill the intrinsic motivation. So, so it's important to really take this into account. But one way you can go around it is not have, you have the target as a strategy process, but the compensation is not based on the fixed number. The compensation is based on a curve in that, let's say if you achieve 50% of the target, then you get a certain level of reward. And if you achieve 200% of the target, then you get rewarded more. But then if you achieve like, I don't know, 10,000% of the target, you don't get rewarded 10,000%. It's a little bit like a bell curve. So eventually it dies off. So you also don't want people like setting up 
crazy low targets and then trying to overshoot because that's, that's just going against fundamentally against your, your strategy and, and, and so on. So you still reward uh, extraordinary performance, but within some, within some bounds. So you can apply a curve there. The other thing that you can do is just avoid completely the compensation around the, the targets and, and kind of compensate people for doing a good process. Because end of the day, the outputs are outside our control. The inputs are not. That's what we control. So people really like metrics and so on because it, it gives a sense of objectivity. So then there is no conflict because it's, the metric says so. So if I don't give you the bonus, it's not because I don't like you or it's because I don't think you're good. It's because of the metric. So we avoid the conflict. But if you take another approach, the more peer-to-peer approach, you focus on the inputs and you can assess the inputs with different technologies. Like I know you guys use SourceCred, there is Coordinate, there is these different peer-to-peer mechanisms to assess inputs. And then you use that mostly for the, for the compensation. And maybe you can have some other things related to the output, but it's not all output-based. However, if you're doing this approach, like more focus on the inputs or more focus in peer-to-peer, you also need to invest in conflict resolution, which, which in the end is going to improve the community, the resilience of the community, because a lot of DAOs fail because of conflicts. Like Aragon is a great example of this, where they had had conflicts many times and people live in waves, or there is Sushi, who's also had a lot of issues with that and so on. So it's sometimes an existential risk, and hence investing in conflict resolution makes sense. But in this scenario where you're using the peer-to-peer ways to incentivize performance or to evaluate performance and calculate rewards, is especially important to do it. Right. Yeah, I love that. I think Amazon, they're like way of doing, like focusing really on the input metrics rather than... Uh, the outcomes yeah exactly and and, right and especially if you have kind of like the alignment around the token or so on so you already kind of have an alignment around the end output like everyone wants the organization to succeed but then what you do is let's focus on doing really good work and then the the output is is the output that's outside our control and we're all of course trying to optimize it and if if the inputs are not leading to good outputs you change them but that becomes only a strategy conversation not a political conversation yeah the way i thought it would work in metagame is uh yeah having this uh overall sort of point of alignment with the overall goal and then uh we split the community based on different uh for different parts, so we have the like the actual community side, the content side, the technical uh, side, and the growth side. So we have uh, basically four different uh, sections of the roadmap, and then these would all be. And at this level, I think it then depends on uh, the actual people who are doing things. So, like the top level goal, we agree on as a community, and then these four different parts of the roadmap are comprised, again, of different uh, initiatives and in what we call internal guilds, which have their own uh, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, have their own uh, champions that are autonomous. And then they would, uh, yeah, set their own uh, goals. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, in general, like, people should be setting their own for sure, like, rather than having this old way of doing, having this uh, cascading... Uh, OKRs, where it's just set at the top, and then every level below is just focused on making sure that the, what was set from the above uh, 
happens. But yeah, encouraging more uh, bottom up, and yeah, focusing on the input uh, input metrics rather than the outcome numbers. Yeah, exactly for for calculating rewards, right? Because then, of course, you need the output metrics to learn, but and also then like having the the richness of indicators so you can really understand throughout the process like what's working what's not working but not not setting the the bonuses with the target because <laughs> it just becomes a completely different organization where where people are trying to to get bonuses not where people are trying to do great work together as a community it's a different game right yeah yeah decoupled the uh the incentive system from that and uh, yeah use uh, what's generally used as key results you just use that as indicators and use the input instead for the actual key results exactly and and be very intentional about target but as a, as a strategy is like do we want to go high risk potential high reward or do we want to be more conservative and each team is going to have a different things because you know each guild is going to have uh, different objectives, different situations, a different strategy fundamentally. So, so it makes sense that they some guilds can be conservative and more about improvement and refinement and maybe trying to improve add efficiencies and things like that. And others might be a, a moonshot guild or at least have a moonshot cycle and see how that goes. But then you know that they might fail and that's okay because because if you're if you try a moonshot you're very likely to fail so you'd need to bake that into the culture otherwise people don't really try or again you end up in a very political process or the motivating process and so on right makes sense i like this outcome i was afraid that you were going to say that uh, like the whole thing should be tossed and i'm like halfway through the book really was excited about trying to implement it in some way <laughs> and no no this is not gonna break the <laughs> illusion that this is going to help. <laughs> no, I I do think it can help. There is, in some bodies of knowledge around self-management, there is a different approach that it's really past these objectives completely. That is more people's sense into the purpose of the organization and then they act accordingly. So it's kind of like extreme trust in the individual, a lot of feedback, communication to adjust and adapt. But these need to be very, very intentional communities with a lot of interpersonal skills, with a lot of personal development into them. So for a lot of these medium-sized organizations, communities, that would be a little bit too complicated. But it's something that you can kind of work towards and get there by investing in, you know, in conflict resolution training, in soft, soft skills development, in creating a really good communication culture, and as well in well, making sure that the community you attract is not pump and dump, number go up people, but actually those who who have a, a bigger purpose and are are working for a reason. On right, yeah, sounds like the the next level. But yeah, for now, for now, I think we need these sort of uh, guidelines. I think it's also easier for like organizations that actually employ people full time rather than in the DAO space where everybody is a part of uh, multiple DAOs that like a lot of them don't have uh, clearly set things for them to do. Yeah, absolutely. That, make, that makes it like we're, we're operating in one of the most brutal and difficult environments. So, <laughs> so it's also... Yeah, and the attention. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's kind of... The scarcest resource. <laughs> Wise words. Well said. 
I want to bring it back to like all coming down to like building uh, these resilient communities and I think that's kind of what the DAOs will shine as like the way it currently seems it seems that they will uh, be more optimized for resiliency rather than efficiency so like as you said as it was previously like setting a, a clear specific uh, product and then focusing all all energy and everything on getting that single product adopted versus uh, with community where it, where it might be more about just building a, a resilient community and uh, having these uh, strong foundations and then people can go off in different directions launch different experiments some of these experiments may get adopted on a massive scale a lot of them will probably fail but the community is always here for people to come back and launch uh, new new experiments and products from yeah absolutely and i mean and that's what we already seen with with hire like in the web2 world these this is a 70,000 people organization, and that's the path that they've been in. They're obviously not the only ones, but they're a really fantastic people because they've been around for a long time, because they they really push in this direction of creating a network of small micro-enterprises rather than a monolithic, let's just try to focus everything on efficiency on a single product. Of course, there is a lot of thinking around efficiency and improvements and so on, but, but it's more a resilient network. And they recently acquired the, well, like a couple of years ago, acquired the consumer appliances arm out of General Electric in the U.S. And in a single year, they had already improved profitability by 16%. And then the following year, they kept on improving. And, and that was also, you know, like the dry financial metric, like profit. They were making more profit. And it was not by cutting costs like crazy and firing people in a top-down manner. It was by transforming to this network where people are more empowered, feel more motivated, there is more resilience, more diversity, more experimentation, and end of the day, more innovation that leads to better customer outcomes and better financial outcomes as well. So, so now our task is yeah, figuring out how, how the fuck to do that in DAOs, which is even harder, but, <laughs> but also potentially a lot more impactful and a lot more scalable and even more innovation and so on. Yeah. Yeah, it's not even necessarily that the, the DAOs won't be as efficient as uh, old school startups. No, absolutely. It's just, it's going to take a little bit of learning and it's going to look different. But but different can be better too. Like it's a perfect note to end it on. Do you have any, any closing thoughts? No, I guess just emphasizing one more time that that we are starting in, in this new path and that there is already a lot of solutions out there. But doing that learning is something that that can seem a little bit counterintuitive for traditional VCs and so on, but that adds tremendous value to organizations and that that's really what we're trying to do. And the more collaboratively that we can do it, the better. And, and I guess for me, that's the that's really the guiding principle across all the other different things that we discussed and talk about. Well said. And then the, the final question that I try to ask every guest, which is that if we had one advice to give to MetaGame, what would it be? I would say be careful with, with metrics. Make sure that 
whenever you are, as you go about and implement these indicators and so on, make sure that every time that the indicator or the target appears, that the objective is also shown. Because it's really a, a UX and information design thing. If you start the meeting by talking about numbers and you forget about the qualitative side, you don't repeat it. The message is very clear. What matters is only the qualitative side. But if you keep the quantitative side alive, the reason why this is important and how this really articulates to a bigger thing, you're going to create a healthier culture. People are going to feel their job is more meaning, meaningful. They're going to be more motivated. And you're going to avoid a, a lot of sub-optimization, uh, which is the danger with the path you're having. So you can end up with the best of, best of both worlds, but, but it's important to not forget that lesson, I think. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing, sharing all the wisdom. No, with pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot as well. It's really, really exciting to see how, how you guys are evolving here. I, as, as I was saying, I, I learned a lot from here and, and really enjoy your conversation. So thanks again for having me. Great to hear. Thank you. And see you around. See you around. Ciao.